Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 174, Sticking the Landing on Mars. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, all kinds of experts about their part in America's space exploration program. And today, we take the next step in our Mars Monthly series. We've talked about how to get a spaceship full of human astronauts to Mars, what they'd have to pack, how we would feed them along the way, and when they got to their destination. Well, today, we talk with two members of the Mars Architecture Team about the considerations for completing a successful landing of a spaceship on Mars. The subject is EDL, which stands for Entry, Descent, and Landing, not at a decision list. We have two guests. Doug Trent from NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, is the Mars Architecture Team's Entry, Descent, and Landing Lead. Doug has been working on the Artemis Human Landing System Program, HLS, for three years, so he's tied into how what we're learning from Artemis at the moon is feeding into the development of the systems to use on Mars. Our second guest is Alicia Dwyer-Cianciolo from the NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. She is the deorbit descent and landing mission segment lead for the HLS and a member of the EDL team for NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate. Alicia has been embedded with the Mars Architecture team for years and has served on several Science Mission Directorate robotic mission teams. She actually has firsthand experience landing something on Mars. She was on console during the Mars Curiosity landing in 2012 and the InSight mission landing in 2018. On this first Friday, our eighth episode on how to get to Mars. Here we go. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. In listening to the Mars Monthly series, I've learned so much about a number of aspects of what it takes to complete a successful trip to Mars. The emphasis is on successful. And I've come to realize more clearly how hard this is going to be, how much has to go right, how much smaller is the margin of error than it is for flights closer to home. And today we're focusing on one critical aspect, landing a spacecraft with humans on board on the planet Mars. So for both of you, and Doug, if you'd start us off, what makes landing on Mars so challenging? Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of times you hear about the seven minutes of terror, and right. that seven minutes of terror really refers to the rough amount of time that's required for our vehicles to go from uh, atmospheric entry interface, basically where the vehicle just starts to enter the Martian atmosphere, uh, all the way to touchdown. Uh, like everyone else, we're basically watching the vehicle perform the landing sequence autonomously. Um, however, because it takes anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes to receive those signals from Mars, we typically only get information about the landing after it's actually already physically happened on the surface of Mars. So a lot of us are really just sitting there almost in terror, clenching our fists, uh, hoping that the landing went as planned. Um, you know, So Alicia has some details that she can share on that, too. Yeah, having been able to uh, have the opportunity to, to sit through two landing sequences, um, you, you can hold your breath for seven minutes. Um, <laughs> it's, 
it's a, it is a little terrifying, um, but you know, we spent about eight years for the Mars Science Laboratory designing that seven seven minutes um, with a with a large group across the agency and and um, with different companies. So you know, a lot of a lot of design and work goes into just those seven minutes, making sure that that we we get it right. And there are some terrific videos that have been made too that to uh, to give us the look at what that probably is like as it's as it's actually happening. The the seven minutes part of it is the amount of time it takes for the vehicle to actually make the transit through the atmosphere to the surface. Is that right? Correct. And it's terrifying because for for you because you have to wait or because of what the vehicle is going through in the process. Both. Um, <laughs> so a lot of what we um, what we we try to plan for is all the things that w- we know the vehicle will encounter, uh, and then we try to design additional robustness and margin into um, all the things that we we know we don't know, as well as the things that we don't know we don't know. So right. you know, we by the time it gets to the, the surface, we have to make sure that um, you know we've accounted for all of those, and you never know until it actually happens if. If we did it, so as many times as you know that we've sent the the rovers, every time it's a different uh, set of uh, scenarios and and a whole different environment that you encounter. So we never really know until we get that signal back that says it's landed. There's lots of different kinds of science that are involved for you guys to figure all this out. And so one of my questions, Alicia, would be, how did you get interested in this line of work in the first place? I mean, what, what kind of paths of, of your interests or education and experience brought you here? So one of the things that, that got me interested was in uh, 1997, NASA landed the first rover, Sojourner, uh, on the 4th of July. And I was in college at the time trying to decide what I wanted to do uh, after I got out of undergrad. And uh, I started watching that. It was one of those those first missions where you could, you know, track its progress every day on the Internet. And uh, the the things that it would that would learn each day, it was like Christmas. The, the, new, ex, the new rocks that it would explore, the new right. different places it would go, it was the first time we'd ever got to see that. And it got me interested in, in hey, that would be something really fun to do. Um, and so when I got out of uh, undergrad, decided to go to switch from physics to engineering as a major, um, one of the, the programs that I looked at was uh, the George Washington University, where you could uh, take classes at a NASA research center and work on projects like this. And here it, it was about five years later, I was hired into the, the, same, the same branch at the center who, who worked on delivering that, that mission to the surface. Outstanding. Hey, Doug, what about you? Give me a brief tour of your education and experience. Yeah, so uh, for me, kind of like Alicia, actually, uh, it certainly wasn't planned. It was more just kind of walking along the path as it presented itself. So, I mean, as a child, uh, I grew up, my parents would always put me in front of the TV to watch, you know, space shuttle launches and things like that to try and keep me interested and excited in space. But um, as I went through school and got into college, um, as I was working on my undergraduate degrees, um, I really didn't have that much of an interest of getting into space. It wasn't necessarily I didn't have an interest as much as as, um, I didn't really think I had the capability to do it. It wasn't until uh, I got my first opportunity to really get involved with space, uh, interning at the Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, basically doing life support systems development testing for the space station. Um, Doing that work really showed me like, oh, wow, I can actually do this, and this is 
absolutely amazing work that everybody's doing, and I, I really wanted to be a part of it. And so that really kicked off the next uh, roughly six-year journey for me going through finishing my undergraduate work in mechanical engineering uh, and then moving forward into my graduate studies at the Georgia Institute of Technology where I focused on uh, systems engineering. Uh, and so basically that focus on systems engineering is what's really led me to where I am today uh, you know, supporting the Mars architecture team doing entry, descent, and landing lead. Um, so basically taking a step back from the mechanical engineering roots that I started with and really focusing on that big picture. You know, um, landing on Mars obviously takes a lot of different things happening in concert all at once uh, to get the job done. And so right. having that systems engineering background to be able to take a step back and really look at all the components that are playing into this, um, just really that background helped me get to where I am today, but also uh, I just have found this really strong love of, you know, looking at the really big picture instead of the nitty-gritty detail. Uh Um, And so that's a little bit of how I got to where I am right now. Terrific. Now, you know, most aspects of human spaceflight come with various elements of risk. We're trying to do something that the human body's not built to do naturally on its own. Uh, Alicia, uh, you've got experience landing a vehicle on Mars, so you're conversant with some of those risks. But I wonder, what risks are there that, uh, in a robotic mission, are things that you can accept that you would not accept for landing a vehicle that has human beings on board? Yeah, it's a it's a very challenging problem. They are, they're not the same. And, and I'm really now, just now starting to appreciate uh, the, the differences um, for, for what, it, what it takes to accommodate crew on board. Um, but really, I, I want to break this down a little bit because, okay. you know, we have um, the difference between landing robotic and human missions, but there's really uh, understanding the way that we, we've landed the robotic missions. And so far, for the past two decades, um, NASA has sent really two classes of missions, to robotic missions to Mars, um, lander missions. And there's the, the 300 kilogram landers, which is kind of Mars Pathfinder, Spirit and Opportunity, Phoenix and Insight. And then there's uh, the Curiosity uh, rover and the, the 2020 Perseverance rover that are both about 900 kilograms. So that's a three times increase in mass. And we had to change a lot of technologies just to get, you know, just to deliver, you know, uh, that three times more massive vehicle. More so than and, just tripling up whatever you had done. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't just scale okay. <laughs> the way you would expect it to. So, through the analysis, we we determined that we couldn't use the the technologies like the the airbags or the the small retro rockets that uh, Spirit and Opportunity used. We needed a bigger heat shield um, that entry uh, that protected during entry. Uh, in fact, we had we built the biggest one we could fit into the buildings. Right. <laughs> we had this limitation. <laughs> but you know, now that we're talking about sending uh, humans to Mars, we we have to completely rethink um, those technologies. The, the, the parachutes um, aren't big enough to deliver the large masses that we need. So uh, just going from the, the 300 kilograms up to the, to the 900 required us to change quite a few uh, elements in our technologies. And then thinking about, you know, what it's going to take to deliver humans. And, you know, now we're talking maybe 20 metric tons of, of payload. We, we can't wow, use wow. Even, the things, right, even the things that we wanted, to, that we designed and, and upgraded for the, the Curiosity and Perseverance rovers. You know, now we, we can't use the parachutes. We can't use the, the retro rockets. We need something um, 
different. And so we're looking at um, what it would take to do that. And it's a whole bunch of different technologies like uh, inflatable structures, and um, but they still have to fit into launch vehicles. So now when you add crew, we can't have things like, like I mentioned, the, the parachutes when it deploys, it results in a, a very high um, G load on the vehicle, so like up to nine or ten Gs, which uh-huh. crew doesn't want to have to to experience. So we're looking at ways to redesign the entry guidances uh, and the entry vehicle path through the atmosphere to reduce those Gs to something that the crew can survive. Plus, it's also a little bit much much more comfortable ride on the way in. So it's those kinds of things that we have to take into account, um, uh, especially when you have crew on crew on board. I didn't realize that the difference would, would be quite so big. You went from like 900 kilograms to 20 metric tons. But in both cases, you're trying to land a payload safely. It's just that one of them has living people on board. The other one has a robotic payload. Is, is there a, a, a significant kind of difference in how you work out those risks, or is it a completely different set of, of calculation? Well, one of the other primary differences is that with all the robotic missions that we've tried to land, they uh, several of them have been ballistic, uh, So, which means that, you know we don't control them on entry. And so we land where you land, and, and that usually requires very large, um, flat, rock-free areas, so hundreds of kilometers in diameter. And um, so we, we don't get to pick exactly where it lands. Um, for curiosity we, and, and then for perseverance, we will be able to, or we were able to steer it much. Okay. Uh, it's the first time we had a guided entry for those vehicles, and we were able to reduce that 100-kilometer diameter <laughs> footprint on the surface, um, you know, where we, we, it could have landed down to about 10 kilometers in diameter. So the difference for when we add crew, when we add crew on board is that now the crew isn't going to want to walk very far to get their stuff. And what the the architecture set up is that we deliver all of the vehicle, um, all the crew logistics, their supplies and their uh, ascent vehicle and everything before they ever get there. So they know it's safe on the on the surface. So now you have a, a you you have the matter of trying to target the landing of your human crew close to their supplies, which you've sent on ahead. Right, exactly. And they don't want to walk very far to get there. So now instead of landing in, in ellipses where we think, you know, we can get there within 10 kilometers in diameter, we're now talking about landing in something that's one kilometer in diameter. And even the way that the technologies that, that allow us to do that, um, we're, we're actually still developing. They're, they're mm-hmm. The precision landing sensors, um, where you have to put them, when they have to turn on uh, so that we can actually see, you know, where you're, you're trying to go and where you're targeting on the surface. Now, I, I understand that the actual spacecraft that's going to land people on Mars has not yet been designed. Uh, Doug, is it possible to give me a sense of, of how big or, or how heavy you think that vehicle is going to be, uh, or, or compared to what's already been landed on Mars? Yeah, absolutely. So, um I noticed in a lot of what you were saying before, you know, you were shocked at a little bit about uh, how much mass that we're saying it might cost. And uh, a lot of that comes from the fact that humans tend to be 
pretty needy payloads. Uh, there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that they need to be able to survive in the environments uh, of space and on Mars. Things like life support systems. You need water to drink. You need food to eat. Right. Um, you need some place to live and sleep and work out of. And so all these things uh, come together to really increase the amount of mass that we really got to deliver to Mars compared to what we would need for a robot, which you know typically doesn't need those things. Right. Um, so Alicia kind of alluded at it. Uh, previous payloads landed on Mars. You know, we've had a couple hundred kilograms with a lot of our rovers, and recently we've been, you know, putting down rovers that are upwards of uh, one metric ton. Uh, but basically, a lot of our current studies suggest that human-class landers are going to require a capability to land roughly 20 times that. So, on the order of 20, 25 metric tons um, per lander onto the lunar surface, and um, so These missions actually are going to. I was going to, well, I was going to say, is that is that, <laughs> a, is that a similar number for the first vehicle that's coming delivering supplies as well as the one that's got the actual people in it? That's correct. So okay. um, each Mars mission uh, right now that we look at, we're typically looking at around three twenty-ton landers to do the mission. So you'd have two landers delivering cargo before you land the third one with crew. And even that third crew lander is going to have some additional cargo on it. So right, right. typically when we're looking at these three lander architectures, uh, the first one is going to land things like maybe your surface power systems, uh, potentially some additional propellant for your ascent vehicle uh, that will actually take the crew off the surface. And then the second lander is... Uh, right now, typically designated for that actual ascent vehicle because, you know, typically we like to bring our humans back home after a right. mission, and so we have a full lander typically dedicated to that vehicle that does that process to get them back off the surface of Mars. And then finally, the third one, once we've got everything in place, all the cargo, the landers, uh, we've got, you know, our ascent vehicle, uh, we've got a checkout from it from Mars that says it's ready to go, it can come off the surface with the crew, then we'll send our crew out and actually uh, land them on the surface of Mars with, again, another one of those 20-ton uh, landers. Does the the increased size or, or maybe the shape of the vehicle or something, does, does that make a difference in how, in the degree of difficulty it is to, to land it softly, if, if we can say it that way? It does. Uh, so, again, like Alicia was saying, you know, some of the previous technologies that were used for landing some of those robotic rovers, like airbags, where basically, you know, they just go on a ballistic trajectory, they kind of bounce around and roll around on the surface and land where they land, not terribly precise if we're going to be landing multiple landers in a small area so that they don't have to walk terribly far to get it. Uh, obviously, that takes some different technology. Uh, as well as, like she said, the parachutes tend to induce some pretty significant loads uh, on the vehicles during descent. Uh, those are so high that we really can't um, subject astronauts to those levels. And so we've got to come up with new technologies and new methods to basically land these kinds of payloads on Mars to support that. So uh, currently, the designs that we use, uh, what we're looking at is basically employing two key technologies to really uh, help us scale these landers up to this new uh, delivery mass that we need. So the first technology that we employ is a hypersonic inflatable aerodynamic decelerator, HIAD for short is typically what we call it. And basically what it is is it allows us to get a much larger diameter to do our um, initial entry uh, deceleration in the launch vehicle constraints that we have. So basically, you know, we're, we're fixed on diameter based on the launch vehicle that we fly on. Maybe uh, in some cases it might be an 8.4 meter uh, SLS fairing. Uh, but, but you're talking about the we'll diameter do, of the vehicle itself, the part of it that is going to be leading the way through the atmosphere. 
Correct. But okay. actually what we'll do is um, we'll inflate large toroidal-type um, sections of the vehicle that kind of come out and deploy to get a vehicle diameter that's much larger than the primary structure of the vehicle, upwards of 16 meters. Oh. Um, and so that's going to give us the surface area, basically, to slow down initially uh, when we start um, impacting the atmosphere. Um, and that'll help slow us down um, not as fast so we don't induce those huge uh, loads that we would see by a traditional parachute. You ease the on the brake. Is, you mean you're going to ease on right, the brake exactly. instead of slamming it. Ease on the brake. Got to be nice to our, our human payloads. Right. The second okay. component, um, obviously, is going to be uh, we don't want to rely on just a inflatable airbag approach where we bounce on the surface and roll around because it's just not going to be a very conducive way of landing sensitive payloads but also humans. And so the second component is basically a supersonic retropropulsion uh, technology. And basically what that's going to do is once we've extracted as much energy as we can by using uh, the thin atmosphere that does exist on Mars to slow the vehicle down, we're going to have to do a little bit more to make sure that we get that soft touchdown, uh, similar to like what we had in the Apollo days with a, you know, a soft touchdown in the lunar lander onto the lunar surface. Right. Um, and so basically what we have is this supersonic retropropulsion component of the landing system that will basically perform the last little bit of uh, propulsive work to basically get that very soft touchdown on the surface. Neat. Alicia, are, are there other technologies that, that you guys are trying to incorporate into this that, that you didn't have for the robotic landers? Absolutely. In order to... Uh meet our precision landing uh, constraints, you know, so the, the crew doesn't have to walk so far. Uh, we can deliver them without, you know, running into any other ac uh, pre-deployed assets. Right. Uh, what we will use are a whole bunch of sensors, and right now we're studying whether we can keep those sensors on board the entry vehicle or if we need to pre-place beacons on the surface or in orbit. But essentially what these uh, sensors will do is uh, tell us where we're at and how fast we're going as we're flying in into the landing site. So we have um, what we call terrain relative navigation sensors, which are cameras that we uh, take images of of the surface as we're coming in and ma and compare those to onboard surface uh, onboard maps of the terrain to to tell us exactly where we are and how fast we're going. Um, uh, we also have, as we approach the, the landing site, um, we have a navigational Doppler, Doppler LiDAR, which will tell us, again, our velocity and altitude uh, and how, our range, how far away we are from the site. And then as we get really close, we, we're anticipating and, and right now advancing technologies so that we can have a, a a LIDAR that will take an image of the the surface right where we want to land and tell us where the rocks and the hazards are so that we can uh, basically avoid them mm -hmm. with a hazard detection sensor. And while none of these have flown on any of our vehicles yet, this uh, Perseverance will be the first mission to, to demonstrate using a, the terrain relative nav uh, cool. system. So, yeah, we're, we're testing these things now so that we can uh, expand on them and, and help for future, help the future missions. I obviously am uh, closely tied in with the human landing system that uh, NASA is currently working as well. And so our HLS partners are currently developing lunar lander systems as part of the artist's program to land humans back on the moon. Um, now, uh, obviously, we like to try and invest in technologies that can be applicable in other places, and this is definitely these landing sensors and these precision landing systems is something that, you know, uh, if we're going to 
build up a sustainable lunar presence, um, being able to land multiple payloads, again, in a very tight area together so that they don't have to walk far to go get their payloads on the lunar surface, uh, that kind of technology uh, is very directly applicable to here on Mars. And so we actually have a lot of commercial partners currently developing lunar landers that are going to employ these kinds of technologies that will be directly applicable to, you know, future Mars missions too. So it's it's definitely a great partnership that we have with commercial industry. It's something that not just NASA is doing all on our own. We definitely have um, support from, you know, companies like SpaceX, uh, you've mm-hmm. got Blue Origin, uh, Dynetics, all developing landers right now under the Human Landing System program to help further these technologies along with us. And it would only make sense to make the best use of all the all the knowledge that you have. The, Absolutely. One thing in, in the things that you've described, there was one thing I was kind of listening for and I didn't hear. Um, how do you, 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 and especially with the human landers, and you've talked about the reasons why you want to land it fairly close to all the supplies that have been sent ahead, but so... How do you steer that thing in order to get to that smaller target area? Uh, if you've got a, a large enough ship to be carrying the human crew of we don't know how many yet, plus whatever supplies you're bringing along, moving at that kind of speed, how do you, do you steer it to head it toward the site you've identified? Right. So... It's definitely a lot of planning ahead of time uh, before we go and actually initiate any kind of descent. Um, obviously, there's always going to be a little bit of uncertainty in terms of how exactly do my engines fire? Do they fire for the exact amount of time that I you know, ex- right. uh, command them to do so? And so those are going to introduce some errors. Um, but, you know, making sure that, you know, we have technologies and, 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 and components in place that can basically execute the commands as we uh, tell them to do so so that we get nearly as close to what we predict. Now, obviously, like I said, there's variations. And so we do have um, secondary, basically, reaction control systems. Uh, it's a, basically a second propulsion system on the vehicle uh, that basically will provide control of the vehicle during these uh, key descent maneuvers, so both during the um, aerodynamic deceleration, but also during the final retro propulsion. The second propulsion system helps orient the vehicle as it's doing these maneuvers to make sure that we stay on track as we go in for our final descent landing. And all of this is getting informed and happening in concert with these um, precision landing technologies, all of the the optical observations that you know cameras are taking pictures of. We've got um, maps of Mars that are preloaded onto the vehicle so that what it's seeing and what it expects to see, it can try and line those up. And all this is happening happening in concert to make sure that we get those very precise landings that we need to really execute mm-hmm. human missions. And so it, it seems, sounds to me like the biggest part of that steering is to be aimed properly when you launch, at the right place and at the right time. Absolutely. Uh, there have been... Ten, if I got that right, there have been ten successful landings of payloads on Mars from Earth. I don't know how many from other planets, but uh, eight by the United States, two by the Soviet Union back in the 70s. Um, Alicia, uh, how valuable is the data from those uncrewed robotic missions How uh, of successfully landing on Mars? How valuable is that data in helping you develop the current EDL plans? It's very important. What it's helped us do is provided uh, 10 
of trajectories, uh, paths through the atmosphere that tells us what the atmosphere is like at each of the different altitudes that we pass through. Now, granted, those are for a specific time, uh, season, mm-hmm. uh, location, so they, they're they a very limited data set, but for uh, in some regions of the atmosphere, it's all the data that we have. What makes them even more valuable is that uh, missions like Opportunity and Spirit and and Curiosity, they've been on the surface at a location where we know exactly where they're at for years. And most uh, the the rovers that are there all carry a science package mm-hmm. that allows them to measure the, the density, temperature, uh, and pressures uh, at the surface. And that really informs our some of our atmosphere models so that we can, uh, as the, the orbiting spacecraft will be able to correlate data with that. Um, it provides, so there's there's two spacecraft right now, uh, Mars Odyssey and Reconnaissance Orbiter, two U.S. spacecraft, and then there's uh, the Mars Express, the European one, uh, that, are, that are taking data of the upper atmosphere all the time, okay. and so that we can correlate some of that data to the, to the, with the surface measurements, and then um, it can inform our our model development and our the, that we use for uh, the design of the, the future missions. So there are some regions of the atmosphere where we just don't have any any data, um, and that's you know we we use that to inform future mission planning as well as future mission design. What what kinds of missions could we send? Um, whether it's flying ones, so there's a helicopter that's going to be flying on uh, on Mars 2020. That'll give us a new opportunity to look at different uh, atmosphere in, in different regions that we haven't haven't been able to at this point. And you're talking about meteorological conditions. Uh, the one that I know anything about uh, is dust storms. We hear about dust storms on Mars a lot. Um, what what kind of challenge do you face if it's time to land on Mars and there's a big dust storm going on? Well, until recently, we've said we won't land if we're in orbit. <laughs> okay. What we will we'll try wait. to do is wait it out, uh-huh. right? And so for most of the year, it is not global dust storm season, and so that would be a reasonable uh, assumption to make. Uh, there are times when you do get those those global storms that do take months to decay. But uh, what, we, what we've planned for so far is that you could stay in orbit and wait. The problem is really it, it creates a, a level of uncertainty that we just haven't been able to to understand and measure because just the atmosphere on a on a clear day is has uncertainty in it and variability that we we have to plan for adding in the the additional complexity of of a dust storm which essentially what it does is is it 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 heats up the atmosphere so that all the, the density is at the higher altitudes and there's lower density near the surface. So it just makes, you know, most of our models aren't set up to, to capture the full uh, variability that that could, that it could entail. We don't yeah. have a lot of measurements during that. So it really just adds a, an uncertainty in the, in the mission design and planning that we would like to avoid. The other challenge is that in some of the, the global storms where you just can't see the surface, it, it does make using those precision landing um, sensors a challenge. So there, were, there are lots of things that we would like to avoid um, with that. The other challenge is that with our capability and our data that we have so far, we can, we can forecast uh, weather on the surface of Mars for about a day. That's about how, how good we, we can predict ahead. 
So it's, it's, it would be okay if we were in a, a say, a one sol, a one um, day of Mars orbit around it, and, and it only took 11 hours to get, once we deorbit from that, from that to get to the surface, it would take 11 hours. We think we'd have a pretty good estimate of what the, the weather at the surface would be, where if we decided to be in a, a larger orbit, say a five sol, or a, an orbit that takes five Mars days to go around, it would take a two and a half day days to to get from you know once you deorbit that to the surface it'd take two and a half days well since we can't predict out that far, that also adds an additional uncertainty. Right. We're trying to identify what what information we would need to improve those um, prediction models so that you know it would enable that kind of prediction capability for for those types of missions but Right now, we would we would like to say we would we'd like to avoid landing in a dust storm. But if we had to, then we'd have to add additional robustness to the system in the way of extra propellant, or you know, we'd have to we'd have to um, to be able to wait for that. Right. Yeah. One uh, important part got to be an important part of the consideration for this has to be the location on the surface. I mean, where on Mars do we want to land? Uh, Doug, can can you give me a, a an idea of what are the characteristics of a, a good landing site or a perfect landing site? Yeah, so choosing a landing site is actually quite complex of a task. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into play. Uh, for our robot, for the robotic landers of previous Mars missions, there's really always been a very clear science objective that's been defined in partnership with you know lots of NASA scientists. Uh, however, when landing humans on Mars, there's some other considerations that come into play. Uh, obviously, we want to do science and things like that, but one of the um, largest um, things that has to be defined is you know what are we going to do when we get there? Are we going there? Right because we want to do human exploration. And so in that case, we might be landing in one spot once to do some scientific er uh, exploration in that area and then land in a completely different area on the planet to do science exploration somewhere else. Uh, that's one way. Another one might be if I'm hoping to develop a longer-term human presence, maybe a Mars colony perhaps. Uh, the latter, so that Mars colony, is going to require a site rich in raw resources, which can be refined to and utilized for further developing the colony, so things like ice, so that we have water to develop and we can convert that into air to breathe. You might need you know, a site rich in uh, specific minerals and things like that that I can refine into resources to actually build structures and things like that. Um, so outside of these questions, obviously, there's also the performance-related part of it. So in terms of selecting the landing site, um, not all landing sites are the same in terms of how they impact the, the design of our vehicle. So things like surface condition, how soft or how hard is the surface that we're going to be physically landing on, how many rocks and boulders are there, and how far are they uh, dispersed, and how, how close are they together uh, in the potential landing zone. What's the slope? The elevation of the, the local terrain, is it, you know, perfectly flat or maybe is it kind of like a little foothill that we're uh, landing near or maybe even on? All these play a role in the design of the actual lander itself. Uh, however, basically, landing is not the only component. So obviously, we're here talking about how, we, how do we stick the landing. But um, unfortunately, uh, taking it back on a more systems perspective, landing isn't the only component. So obviously, with our crew, like I said earlier, we want to bring them home. And so ascent is another portion of the mission, a very important part of the mission, to get our crew home. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the landing site selection and how that impacts the ascent vehicle might not be 
the same as how it impacts the descent system. And so, you know, for instance, in terms of the landing vehicle, um, uh, I would prefer the land the uh, the landing system at as a low altitude as possible, and that's mainly because I'll get a more dense atmosphere. It allows me to slow down better, and so I can have less propellant, basically. However, the ascent system would prefer to land on top of the highest mountain possible because that just puts me that much closer to orbit, which then it requires less uh, propellant. And so really, but then you'd have to again, walk down the mountain, right? You have to walk exactly, up the mountain to so, get to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it, it's just basically highlighting the fact that there's this trade amongst the various different components. So the, the lander isn't the only component in a Mars mission. There's a lot of other things that go into place. And so uh, for me, uh, an ideal landing spot would be something that's flat, has a nice hard surface, so I don't have to worry about my landing gear sinking into like a really dusty surface or mm, something like that. Right. Large enough that I can land several vehicles in close proximity. So like you said, top of a mountain, probably not a good idea. Um, and really only a small amount of smaller rocks. So I don't have to worry about maybe a landing gear, you know, hitting a large boulder or something like that, or maybe a larger rock that puts me in a weird uh, tilt when I land or something like that would be not ideal. And lastly, I'd like it to be close to at least some useful resources, particularly something like water ice uh, that can be useful for, you know, life support and drinking and, and, and things like that particularly if it's a, a, an early mission where you're going to have to be setting things up from scratch. Right. You don't want to have to go far to, to get them. Um, that's, that's true. I, I, I can understand, as, as you say it, that there are so many different things to, to take into account that it's where you want to land is not a simple answer. And, and one of the big parts of it, as you noted is that it depends on what you want to do there. So that's all part of the the stuff that you guys have still got to work to do to figure out in the in the years to come. Um, one thing we didn't talk about and that I want to now as as we've considered all these elements and kind of try to synthesize it um, is to flesh out the human detail for me. Um, if we all three were strapped into the Mars vehicle and headed down for the surface, uh, Doug, can you give me a sense of what it would look like and sound like and feel like as we rode through the Martian atmosphere to the surface? Yeah, so unfortunately, I have not had the chance to fly on a space shuttle or maybe land on the moon yeah. uh, yet. Not yet. Maybe someday. Uh, so it is a little bit challenging to say how it might look and sound inside the vehicle, but we can definitely make some uh, educated assumptions or guesses on how that might look. So obviously the design of the crew cabin is going to have a huge impact on what it physically looks like and sounds like. Um, you know, the materials that it's made of, how big it is, all these things are going to uh, play a role in how that might happen. However, uh, with the design of the current entry-descent landing system, uh, there is... Uh, a bit that we do know that it's going to be similar to. Based on the design that we have right now, it's going to be very similar to both a shuttle landing and a lunar landing. You kind of get components of both. So mm. this is because, you know, like I said, the initial parts were definitely entering an atmosphere going very, very fast. And so you've got that component very similar to a shuttle, how it uh, re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. Obviously, it's going uh, hypersonic, and so you're going to get plasma buildup and things like this. So any kind of windows that you might have, you're going to see just fireballs out the windows, right. uh, similar to any kind of reentry during Earth. So we would expect to see 
similar uh, kinds of events while landing on Mars, and of course the sounds that would uh, accompany those kinds of things. Um, however, unlike um, a shuttle uh, reentry and landing, the shuttle lands basically it glides down back to the surface uh, and lands on a runway. Uh, however, like we were talking about again, we're going to have a hypersonic uh, retropropulsion or a supersonic retropropulsion system where we have to basically turn on engines to do the final little bit of landing. So that's where basically the more like a uh, lunar landing component comes in. Uh, so obviously we're going to have the sounds of, you know, pumps spooling up to start moving propellant. You're going to have engines igniting, all the good sounds that comes with a loud, powerful rocket engine igniting. And so you'll have that component as well that's maybe a little bit different than the shuttle uh, system. Now, the crew is going to experience accelerations similar to those experienced by the shuttle astronauts, and that's not just random. That's by design. Uh, we obviously have a very good understanding of the limitations of the human body under accelerations uh, and have designed the lander and the descent profile to basically provide that environment such that it's not too extreme for the astronauts. Uh, however, we are still working uh, with our medical community on the finer de on finer details. So things such as seating orientation, you know, are they going to be sitting upright or um, like we sit in a chair here on Earth, or is it going to be uh, or is it going to be more of an inclined position, uh, position to better accommodate the acceleration load? So, for mm -hmm. instance, you know, we might lean them back at some kind of angle to put their back towards the vehicle so that we have a good large surface on their body to impart some potentially higher loads. Um, so things like this we haven't really nailed down yet, and it's still under study, but we're obviously working with the various communi communities necessary to kind of flush these details out. One of the things that it occurs to me, you'll also, in working with, with the medical community, you've got to consider the fact that these astronauts who are about to land have been in a, in a weightless environment for, for many, many months now, and they may be a lot weaker than, uh, the, than they were when they launched. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, right now, the uh, the missions that we're looking at, they could take months, basically, to get the uh, astronauts to Mars. And, you know, we've seen from astronauts coming back from the space station all the time, uh, you know, they'll land um, wherever they land. And, and typically, we have a whole host, a whole crew of people from Earth to help them out of the vehicles and move them to, you know, whatever transport uh, vehicle to move on uh, after they've landed. That's something we're not going to have on Mars. And so, that deconditioned state of the astronauts uh, when they get to Mars is certainly um, a very large uh, concern that we have. Ideally, they'll be able to get out of their chairs. The size of these landers and how tall they are, they're likely going to have to probably crawl down a ladder or something of that sort to be able to get to other assets that might be on the surface, like a rover or other payloads and mm -hmm. things like this. And so um, a lot of it right now, the, the approach is, well, when they land on the surface, we'll give them a certain amount of period, maybe it's a few days or a week or so, to basically condition to that new environment, basically the Mars gravity, to hopefully give their bodies enough time to at least uh, kind of get their <laughs> walking legs back underneath them uh, to basically execute the mission. But that's a good point. So what? So that means that the, whatever they land in has to have everything that they need to live for that amount of time. Right. And we've talked about being able to maybe just deliver the crew in something like uh, an Orion capsule or, you know, something, a smaller vehicle, and then have them get out. But because of this deconditioned crew uh, environment that they will be in, uh, we do need to have them land in something that's got all the things that they will need to live for that long 
before transferring. Right. Um, Alicia, you've already landed robotics on on Mars before. Have you thought what it'd be like the first time you can land something that's got human beings inside of it? You know, back when the the movie The Martian came out and they had all these different ideas of how to, you know, as we're designing these and we're looking at, you know, how can we use our imaginations to figure out how all the different parts could be interchangeable or if something did go wrong, how would you, you know, address that? You know, so it's, you know, getting out and looking for the first time at this new planet that we haven't ever, you know, looked at with our, with human eyes. We've done it with robotic eyes a lot of times and, and uh, try to just imagine what that would be like. I think it it comes back to the engineers on also imagining, you know, what could go wrong with the systems that we're building and how we could, you know, make sure that they're they're robust to a a wider range because we just don't know what it's going to be like. So that's that's part of the, the, the challenge, and it's also part of the fun. Yeah, to be able to uh, to figure out how to do something that people have been thinking about doing f- for generations. It's It's got to be a really cool job to have. Uh, Alicia and Doug, th- it's been terrific to, to hear your perspective on this. Uh, thank you very much, and, and good luck with the work. You're welcome. Thank you. I recently saw the episode of a streaming series in which the crew module with five astronauts on board made its descent through the Mars atmosphere. And they did, I thought, a pretty good job reflecting the seven minutes of terror that those humans landing on Mars are going to live through on their way to history. Great talk today to get some level of detail and see what the NASA engineers and scientists are working through to develop the systems that will safely put our astronauts down on the planet Mars in the years to come. Now, if you need to catch up on what we've discussed in our Mars Monthly episodes so far, or if you just want to listen to them again, and who could blame you, go to nasa.gov podcasts. Click on our name and look in the left side for HWHAP Mars episodes, and you'll find them all lined up right there. Our next one comes in January, January 8th, 2021. I will also remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. Probably also be a good idea for you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. When you go to those sites, you can use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Make sure to indicate that it is for Houston We Have a Podcast. You can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov slash podcasts and scrolling to our name. You can also find all the other great NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. Very convenient. This episode was recorded on November 17th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Beth Weisinger, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, and Michelle Rucker for their help with the production. And to Alicia Dwyer-Cianciolo and Doug Trent for filling us in on another critical aspect of designing a trip to Mars for human astronauts. We'll be back next week. <laughs>